So we received a letter from a subscriber and concerned citizen about the way that things have changed where he lives. And I thought it was just worth going through because it's uh, several pages long and I could really feel the frustration that underpinned um, this chap's uh, letter. And I really, it really resonated with me. Um, I can't give his name because he said, it says towards the end, if you do want to use anything that I've written here, uh, please keep out of it uh, my name, my address, and the company that I work for. So of course, I won't be naming him or where he works, but I can talk about the general location in which he's in and the kind of occupation that he does. Uh, he also sends in this very, very nice bottle of mead, which is apparently from a local brewer, uh, which is very good as uh, we've all had some and it's uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. So he says, to those at the Lotus Eaters, first of all, allow me to congratulate you, uh, not only on the sheer dedication of all involved keeping the podcast going as long as it has, but on your success as well. It truly is a testament to the sheer grit of all involved. I've been a follower since the days Benjamin was butting heads with those such as Akila and Inita Sarkeesian. I write in response to what I suppose I would call an epiphany after watching a recent podcast of yours, particularly the segment where William Haig talks about how mass uncontrolled immigration is the answer to all of our problems. Allow me to introduce myself first. My name, I will keep anonymous, uh, I'm a name I'm proud to bear even if I'm not directly descended from any of the clans that shaped Scotland from its earliest days, because this chap comes from near Dundee, is about as accurate as I think I am ought to make it, um, but he's someone from what I would call, I guess, central Scotland, um, who has lived there his whole life and has ancestors going back as far as Robert the Bruce. Um, he explains more about his ancestry. I'm, I'm reluctant to cover it exactly because I don't want to give any uh, sleuths at the company in which he works uh, a reason to find out who he is and fire him just for having concerns about the state of our country, right? But, uh, but he's descended from a knight who came to Scotland around the time of Robert the Bruce and is interred in a tomb uh, near where he lives. And I like this at the bottom. He says... Uh, the, the knight himself is now interred in a small tomb in the Church of Scotland in Fife, and I admit feeling a great sense of reverence when I finally found him, as if I could feel the centuries, be centuries between us narrowing. But anyway, he says, I digress. I myself am a bus driver uh, working for a bus company, and thankfully the pay is probably some of the best a bus driver can hope for, though this is where my ire stems from and where I had my realisation after listening to your podcast, something I often do on my 10-15 to minute commute because of cyclists and uh, farm traffic depending. Um, as you may be aware, here in Scotland, the SNP sought to buy the young vote by introducing free bus passes for those under 22 years old. Most are likely oblivious to the reason for their introduction. I see them all, all I see them is being enamored with their phones as I drive past every day. But all seem to be the under, under the impression that it is indeed free, much as those with passes for the disabled and the over 60s do. Uh, and some of us would, ha and some would have us believe that we can totally survive as an independent nation as things stand currently. As a matter of curiosity, I took it upon myself a few months ago to count how many of my passengers in the course of five days, those being Monday through Thursday and Saturday, uh, something easily done when you print a list of all the transactions made uh, on each trip, and found that a total of 443 passengers, out of those, 63.3% of my transactions those of bus pass holders. Of this 63%, the highest number of transactions were found to be from those with over 60 passes. 
bearing in mind that the fare is still taken in full, albeit from a taxpayer-funded bank account, uh, with what I believe is 59% going to the bus operator and remaining 41% going to the issuing council. Granted, I can understand why many pensioners would use the passes, though there are some who refuse to on principle, yet it does highlight the point you made about people being dependent on the state for providing for them with a service that they could pay for themselves. I know my grandparents used to save up the 20 pence coins from their change from shopping the previous week to use for bus fares. Nowadays, nobody cares so long as they aren't paying directly out of their own pockets. They'll come on, slap the pass on the reader with utter indifference, and tell me where they're going. I've obtained three more trip reports recently to provide some fresh data. I've highlighted all instances of passes being used on each report, but know that for just one trip totaling 44 passengers, 37 were pass holders. Please find these includes for your own perusal. And he had sent with us a wedge of bus ticket receipts, which I did peruse through. I haven't featured because they are branded, uh, and I don't want someone with zooming and enhancing capabilities to find them and, and track this guy down. But this, I feel, is very interesting, because what he's saying is this is not a sustainable service. The people who use the service, and the, only one, the majority of them, do not pay for it, and why should they not have to pay for their own bus fares, which is fair. But I also find this, the nobody cares as long as they aren't paying out, they slap their pass on the reader with utter indifference and tell me where they're going. This is very interesting. I think he makes reference to it a bit later as well. The, the way that people treat the bus drivers, I think, is actually strange and indicative of the kind of settled culture of the British Isles, treating it, treating the country as something that they possess and not merely occupy. And I think this really is the difference between the newcomers and the natives, as in we feel like this is our home. We have deep roots here. We have deep ties. As this chap says, he's directly descended from a Scottish knight who fought with, or at the time of Robert the Bruce. And so he feels that he possesses the land around him. Even if he personally doesn't own it, he is not merely an occupier somewhere that he doesn't belong. He feels that he genuinely belongs in this place. And I, I feel a lot of that too. I feel very much that, hang on a second, I'm a man of Wessex. Right? I, my, my family come from the southwest of England, and they have been here for God only knows how many generations going back into primordial time. And so I feel an affinity and a belonging here, even though I was raised in a military family and we moved everywhere around the country and lived in Germany for eight years. When I came back to England, I naturally just moved to the Southwest. I didn't even think about it. This was just where I come from. This is where I belong, where I should be, whether I have even lived here at all or not. It was just natural to do. And moreover, it does annoy me as I can feel the annoyance coming from this chap's letter um, that, I mean, it doesn't matter to him, right? He's being paid to transport these people. He's being paid presumably fairly well from his own description. And it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things for his position that this is the case. But it's not the right way to do things. People should pay for the service that they use. That's a pretty straightforward axiom that obviously will make sure that the services are reliable, funded, and not abused. But of course, if that's the case, then people are responsible for themselves. And that means that some people will have to take that burden onto their own shoulders, because, and this is where he goes with it, he says, 
This brings me to another point in terms of being overly reliant on the state for everything. Care. As you mentioned, families and communities seem to have lost all sense of self for the most part. While I do wish we could be, all be entirely independent and able to support ourselves at home, when my fiancé and I bought our house after the first lockdown in 2020, something I'd saved religiously for in my time during the RAF, we got a four-bedroom house to ensure that my father had a place to stay. He had suffered due to lockdown, having worked, worked as a living caretaker for 20 years, only to find himself laid off to save the trustees of the hall he was a caretaker of some money at 74 years old and three years into a life of Parkinson's. He was left with the choice of either paying rent he could not afford for the house he had lived in rent-free until that point, or throwing himself at the mercy of the council in hopes of landing himself in a bedsit in some god-awful suburb. It turned out that a member of the council, a Lib Dem, as it were, uh, was one of the trustees, and though he did try and help my dad find a place, my fears for his situation were confirmed when I saw what was being offered. Now, he has arguably the largest bedroom in our house, with a fireplace of his own and a room of his, for all of his possessions, and in return, kindly pays for shopping once a month, our broadband, electricity, and heating oil when it is needed. This is indicative of the old model of our civilization, the model before the managerial state was brought into being in the 20th century. This is what would have happened in years gone by, long before we were born. Uh, if one of your family members was in trouble, they would have a room in your house and they would contribute to the household. That would be expected of them and it would be proper. And there's something really sweet about this, right? This, he's, he's made sure that he has done his duty as a son towards his father, because I do believe that we owe, we do have a duty of obligation to our parents, especially if they've been good parents. But he carries on. My father and I were never quite able to see eye to eye when I was growing up, and I don't think that's unusual. I think a lot of fathers and sons don't quite see eye to eye, eye, to eye uh, especially during their teenage years. But that doesn't matter. You're still his son, and he's still your father, and that's clearly what this chap is getting at here. For context, among other things, he had been a military contractor during the Dofar War in Oman, and having been one of those two, among other things, helped place the late Sultan Qabos bin Said al-Said in power in place of his father, before joining up and training the fledgling Sultanate of Oman's Air Force, now the RAFO, clocking in almost three decades of time in the country, and even attaining the rank of warrant officer, having his own house, two cleaners on the go, and with it uh, during his time at Thumrate. It was understandable why he would think a military career would be perfect for me as well. Though I was quite reluctant, having started off in the Royal Navy when I was 17, I am now 36, how, times fly, how time flies, I did eventually end up in the RAF as a driver, a trade now being handed off to civilian contractors, a move that, made Lenny, a move that led many of, in my section alone to handing in our notices within a few months of each other. Ironically, I now get paid to, more to drive public transport, even though some might argue I pay for it in other ways. So this I find interesting as well, because uh, my father was a sergeant in the RAF, and I think he would have been very happy had I joined the military in some capacity as well. Um, however, I've always been a bit, a bit of a, don't know how to say it. I've always been a bit too hard-headed for that. I don't, 
I don't appreciate the level of discipline in the military, uh, or I didn't when I was a teenager. I think as an adult, I probably would appreciate it, and I uh, appreciate that it needs to be something that the military itself requires. Um, but it, it was never just to, it was never to my taste, and so I, I can completely understand that a, a father of that generation would prefer that their sons did that. Um, but as uh, this chap says, he has become uh, he did transport in the in the military, and now he does it in civilian life and gets paid more. So he carries on. I must apologize for veering quite off topic again. My father is, despite our differences, someone I have a lot of respect for, stern as he was as a father figure. Uh, despite all of this, he remains my father and my family, and for what I feel that I at least owe him this much. Um, and this, this I think, is, again, characteristic of the generation. I'm, I'm slightly older than him. I'm about eight years older than him, nine years older than him seven years older than him. But um, I think this is characteristic of men of my father's generation, who I would, again, say was quite stern as a father figure, but who was never inappropriately stern. Um, and I think that this is something actually, if we were to be given the option, we would probably have to choose because there is, there is a series of moral values that we end up imbibing because of a stern father that we don't understand that we need until we see people who don't have them. Uh, people, especially young men, but also young women very much so, who don't grow up with a stern father figure in their lives, um, well, they find themselves unable, really, to operate within the proper structures of society, I think, actually. Um, they fail in ways in which our society is expecting them and, in fact, encouraging them to fail. They fail to get solid careers, they fail to make good money, they fail to form steady relationships with members of the opposite sex. And I think this isn't good for any of them. And I think actually, the stern father figure, I mean, maybe maybe this chap's father was more stern than mine, um, but I think the stern father figure is something that came about for good reason. I think that he has done the right thing here, of course, by saying, well, look, it doesn't matter how, whether we saw eye to eye, to, eye, to eye or not, uh, he's still my father and he still needs my help. And so it's my obligation to help him and that's what I'm going to do. And luckily for him, I would say, um, he has the wherewithal to be able to do that because I can think of my, some of my own family members uh, and lots of people that I've known who haven't had stern father figures or father figures who are perhaps inappropriately stern who actually don't have the wherewithal for that and don't have the ability to marshal resources and set the order of their own lives in a way that would allow them to be a benefit and help to other people, even if they felt that they should do that. Even And I'm sure a lot of them would feel that. They, they still don't have those options available to them. And so there's a lot, I think, that's contained in that. And it shows you the character of the kind of people, that the kind of person, the kind of community from which he comes. And I mean, obviously, I mean, I might be like 600 miles away from him, very down the very south of England, but I mean, this speaks very much to me on a, on a moral level. This is how things should be done. This is the, how the man should run his life. This is what he should do on a daily basis, and clearly he does it. And so when you've got someone upholding the correct moral order of civilization, which I think that this chap is doing, from his own account at least. And I've got absolutely no reason to think that he's in any way lying or being deceptive. 
And even if he wasn't, it would be a good representation of what the correct moral ordering of society should be. So we're speaking about a man who is doing the right thing for the right reasons and living a good and wholesome life as a regular person can best manage it. We can say that this, this man is exhibiting virtue. He carries on. All of this leads me to the subject of care homes, particularly the matter of their employees mostly being of the, shall we say, African persuasion, and their sudden increase in numbers. In my capacity as a bus driver, I find myself running to Dundee at least four times a week, depending on what duty I am working. When I first started driving buses in 2018, it was rarer than a blue moon to have someone ask for a student ticket. Yet, within the last 12 months, there's been a veritable explosion in the number of student tickets being issued on my part. As if by coincidence, I would say 99% of those requesting them are black. And before I continue, let me inform you that they are perhaps some of the rudest, ill-mannered, and even racist people to set foot on my bus. You would think the local junkies would be the worst, but at least they remember their manners even when in a daze, whereas one of the so-called students accused me of racism for daring to ask for her student ID. In short, the exchange that followed, in the short exchange that followed, I told her that I'm indeed not a racist, but she would be waiting for the next bus, followed by her protestations of needing to get to work before I put my foot down and told her it was either get off or I'd call the police for refusing to get off the bus. I find this little exchange fascinating because there's so much contained within it. Who are, since 2018, uh, you can see that there's been an increase in the foreign population students in his area. Well, something very similar has happened in Swindon, actually. Uh, we don't have the numbers except for the 2011 census to now, but in the 2011 census, there's a very small immigrant population in Swindon. Now, it's one-sixth of the entire town that is from a, a first-generation immigrant background. You can see it when you go around the town centre. It's absolutely swarming with people, but we don't have a university here, so they can't claim to be students. Uh, but these people are not from any one background. They're from literally everywhere. The only place that seems to be absent in the immigrant population of Swindon is uh, Southern America, actually South America. Uh, very, very few Latins, um, but you get lots of Europeans, you get lots of Africans, you get lots of Asians, you get lots of Indians. Yeah, it goes on. But the point he's making when he tells me what's happening around him, or at least a point you can extract from it, is that you can see that the people who have come here, who are not from here, and don't know the uh, local customs of just being polite to the bus driver. I mean, this is a thing that I think a lot of foreigners don't understand. That in Britain, we're polite to the people who serve us because we don't want our country to be reduced to a mere money transaction. We want to make sure that the person that's serving us understands, and we don't articulate this, but this is really what's happening, is we want to make them understand that, look, we, we recognize you're a person uh, who belongs here. You're a member of our society. It's not merely that you have the abstract category of citizen. It is that you you are, in some way, it's it, it's it's much more Aristotelian, as in the the country is held together with bonds of friendship, and so you are sentimental and polite to the person who's serving, even though you've got no reason to 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 do so. You don't have to say good morning or goodbye or thank you to the bus driver or whoever is serving you. You do it because it's kind. You want to be kind to that person because why wouldn't you want to be? If, you, if you're totally indifferent towards them, then they'll be indifferent towards you. And other people will see that this, this pattern of indifference will spread. And actually, it's much better 
to have a more rich and wholesome sentimental view of your fellow countrymen. But that can only work if they are your fellow countrymen. If they actually grew up in the place in which you grew up and come from the place you come from and this and, and actually carry the civilization you are both a part of. If they're just strangers who have arrived, why would they know that this is the custom here? Why would they understand on a subconscious level that this makes the place feel like home? Of course they wouldn't. There's no reason to think they would. And also, you can see that they know the passwords to obtaining the kind of progressive privileges that certain uh, well, races in this country have over others. I'd like to see your student ID. Oh, you're a racist. That person clearly knows that if, if you're challenged on something by a white person, this isn't going to work on another black person or a brown person, whatever. If you're challenged on something by a white British native, you call them a racist and they will give you what you want. It is like a passcode. It is like some sort of shibboleth. And she knew what she was doing. And the fact that all of these students have obviously been told, look, you can get free bus passes. Well, that's why so many of them, have, they've been instructed, they've gone and done it. And so now they get free bus travel. Why should people who are not from this place have free bus travel? Why should Scottish people or English people, or Welsh people, pay for the free bus travel of foreigners? Why should that be the case? I mean, it's mad. I'm annoyed enough about having to pay for free bus travel, Scott. No, I'm just joking. I am annoyed about it, but I'm, I'm not going to go on. But the, the haughtiness of the person, hang on, I called you a racist. You should have just allowed me whatever I want. It does take on the aspect of a kind of aristocracy, doesn't it? I saw you, a native white Brit, and I called you a racist. You give me what I need. You do not have the authority to challenge me. And he rightly says, no, I will need to see a student ID if you were to get a student ticket on the bus. It's totally fair, totally normal, applies to everyone and anyone. And so you can just see the attitude they have towards him and his community. And by extension, Scotland and the rest of this country. It's not one of respect. And that's the problem, isn't it, really? Anyway, he carries on. I'm going to omit the place names just because Dundee is enough, right? He says, my bus routes take me to a place uh, which is the home of a large chicken factory. Having once been worked by locals, they ended up being almost entirely replaced by, you guessed it, Romanians. Uh, Nigel Farage predicted that 250,000 Romanians would come to Britain when we, start, when we had open borders with Romania. Turned out it was 500,000. He was called a racist for that, as if Romania isn't from Europe. Chances for the most part, but, it, but they at least seem to actually have come here to work. If only they would apply that work ethic to learning the language and integrating. Now it seems they are being replaced by the black students, which you might find odd as surely students should be going to university during the week, right? Yet, if you go past this particular place at approximately 2 to 2.30 p.m., you'll see dozens upon dozens of them waiting to get in to start their shifts. My fiancé, a biologist who works closely with the University of Dundee, once told me that according to someone in student admissions, they only need to attend for one hour a day. Let that sink in and then think of those who, are actually, who actually legitimately want to go to university and are being denied places due to those I unapologetically call parasites. What can the opinion of these foreign students be of us? 
to have such low standards of expectation for their behaviour and work. What can they think of us? I'm sure this wouldn't fly in whichever country these people came from. I'm sure that they have stern parents of their own there, and they have much more stern institutions of their own there. And no, they wouldn't get away with doing merely one hour of at least attendance before going off and being able to work a full-time job and getting all the benefits of being employed and being a student at the same time. I'm positive that that's why they come here, in fact. It's because they know that actually we are a soft touch on all of these things. And so when we say, well, they clearly don't respect this country, well, what reason do we give for them to respect this country? Why should they? We don't really respect ourselves. We are prepared to take on a kind of second-class status in our own country. If someone calls a white person a racist, that person is always in the wrong and they should back down. Okay, well, why, what, may, what, what should I take from that other than you are willingly adopting this position and if you're going to allow me, someone who has just arrived here, to gain more benefits than you can personally claim, then surely I do have a privilege in this country and why should I not act like it? And then there are the care homes many of which are conveniently along some of my routes as well. I have seen an alarming increase in the number of African students going to work at these places as well. You would think that such people in such a position would at least have some manners about them too, right? You'd be naive to think so, for I remember seeing one of my colleagues almost getting into a punch-up with one who had mistaken the bus for a taxi, demanding he take him directly to the home he worked at instead of taking a five-minute walk there when he realised that the bus was going no further. He soon learned that the problem with being a foreigner is that you stand out like a sore thumb. Needless to say, he now gets refused on every trip. The last I heard from a local who worked at the same home, he had been caught stealing meals intended for some of the residents and having them for himself. I don't believe anything more needs to be said on the particular matter, although I have heard this is quite common among this particular demographic. Now, I have no idea if this is common among any particular demographic. And I don't think it is because they are this demographic that these people may do this. I think this is just a consequence of the fact that zero expectation is being placed upon them. Without the weight of these expectations, why should they not treat us as if we don't respect ourselves? Why should they not just take as much as they can and give as little as they can in return? What is their investment in our society? The answer is, of course, zero. I mean, aside from the obvious, you don't understand how the buses work because you're not from here, there, and, and the fact that you nearly got a punch-up with the guy, who are the people that you're taking care of? Dunno. Literally foreigners, from the point of view of the student. Why do I, I don't care about old Mrs. McGregor, who needs some help, who needs this, who needs that, who's waiting for her lunch. I'm hungry and I'm just not bothered and I don't think you're going to do anything if I break the rules. That's a really bad situation to be in because we are finding ourselves reliant on people who are basically kind of contemptuous of us. Do you want to be at a person's mercy if they have nothing but contempt for you? If they're just here really to kind of take advantage of the advantages you're going to offer them for reasons they can't really understand. I'm sure a lot of them are like, if you ask them, why do you think the British state gives you, a foreign student, everything and requires everything of the British? I mean, if they're not 
baffled by why this happens. They probably have some kind of left-wing post-colonialist narrative that justifies it based on the 19th century. And so the question is, is it unacceptable or unreasonable for this chap to be annoyed with this state of affairs? Is it unreasonable that he goes to work every day, even though his job is government subsidized, it's still his tax money that pays for these people to treat him resentfully, contemptuously, to treat him in a manner in which he wouldn't treat his neighbors. Why should he be treated this way by them? He says this, I suppose what I'm trying to say in all of this is that I'm angry. Not only was I born here, but I come from a family that served our nation for generations, protected our lands and helped maintain order. If there has been a war, we have had someone there in some capacity or another right up until Afghanistan and sub the subsequently disastrous withdrawal. We served as a matter of loyalty or obligation to our great nation, and yet this is what it has come to. Our nation is being given away to those who have no interest in our culture and traditions, nor any intention of ever being loyal to the nation they probably don't even call home to begin with. We are merely a piggy bank to be shaken empty by the, quite frankly, illiterate rejects of the third world, complete with government handouts in the form of free housing and benefits. Those young enough, citizen or no, even get access to the free bus passes mentioned earlier. How can you say that he's wrong to feel that way? He does his job. He watches people who shouldn't be doing a job because they should be studying, getting the money from being a student as well as making money from taking the job that a native person should be doing. And they treat him in a way that he's not happy with. How can you say he's not justified in being annoyed by this? It does look like we are a piggy bank that is to be shaken to get money out of. These people are obviously not loyal to the country, and they've got no reason to be. What's their investment in Scotland? I'm here to get as much money out of the state as I can. And you, the working, hard-paying, hard-working, tax-paying Scotsman, is going to pay for that. And if you ask me for my student ID, I'm going to call you a racist? This is not an acceptable state of affairs, is it? He continues. Now, I will admit that I'm doing far better than many of those in our country who scrape by and have to count their pennies every single day. But I take nothing for granted. Everything I have today, I worked for. Being a mortgage owner with a remortgage date in 2025, I do worry about how interest rates are going to be when that day comes. While we do save plenty of money for the occasion each month, it can end up becoming a much needed buffer against future interest rate hikes. And this plays into the where have all these people come from question. Why is the rent and the mortgages so much higher? Well, a massive increase in population is one of those reasons. It continues with this. I will end on the subject of community. I grew up on the outskirts of a village. It was a place in which everyone knew everyone. He does name the village, but I'm going to cut that out. From the teachers to the shopkeepers, the milkman to the doctor, and all the families, be they those who had lived there a long time or those who had recently moved in, I remember the house of our old head teacher, one Mrs. Jack, with dread, for these were the days when teachers could demonstrate authority. I remember when the primary school classes were taken to the village gala on the back of trailers, towed by tractors of the local farmers, each class sporting a themed fancy dress of their own. I remember with great humour how my class were once dressed up as Thunderbirds in Primary 3. 
with costumes made by the parents. There were enough of us to fill every role that year. I was Thunderbird 3, by the way. I remember the time I was taken to hospital for an operation when I was 11 or 12, only to find one of the women who run the Beaver Scouts group I had been part of when I was younger looking down at me amidst the bustle of the prep room, remembering me after what seemed like an eternity to my younger self at the time. It turned out she was an OR nurse, and when she wasn't giving up her evenings to run our group. After we moved house, I would not return to this village for 11 years. When I came back, I was saddened to find the streets that we had once been towed through, now packed full of cars, and there, when there had only once been a handful in the past. A park where the galas had been held was now blocked off with permanent bollards, while the local farmer changed hands, the new owners selling off the land for a swathe of new built houses. The dairy was gone too, doubtless along with the milkman, his black Labrador, and the red pickup he used to make his runs in. The village shop was still in the same family from my time, however, and still is today. But all, that is all that remains, aside from the old inn next door. All of this hangs behind the inescapable roar of traffic on the main road at the outskirts. I dare say you would be hard-pressed to find someone who could explain how all this changed, to point to the catalyst that turned the tight-knit village into another commuter scheme. I find it fortunate that I find myself living in a village that comprises a little under two dozen houses. Slowly but surely, I've been making every effort to be involved in the community with what time I have to spare, but it hardens me to see that there are plenty of those here who believe in community as I do. And here he describes the modernization of Britain that has taken place in his own lifetime. Um, I wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in a small village, actually. Uh, I grew up on military bases, moving around in this country and others. But at least in some respect, they always were a kind of very British thing. You, you felt like you were in a part of England when you were living in Germany or when you were living wherever. So at least I had that, but I, I'm very empathetic to this. Like the, pro the, the march of progress has finally arrived at a small Scottish village and now new builds have to be built everything gets bought out and repurposed and now the place in which you grew up just is not the place in which you grew up and so what do you do that part of existence that that place in time is gone and it only resides in your memory of, rem of remembering just how good you had it and didn't realize it at the time like nostalgia means a longing for home and this person is saying, well, look, my home actually no longer exists. And the place I lived in no longer obtains. I've got an interesting example of this, actually. Um, on the, the, I, I lived out in Germany in two separate periods, uh, from one between the ages of about three and six, and then from about 12 or 13 to about 17 or 18. I can't remember exactly. Um, and we used to live originally at the north side of the camp. I think it was a place called Lancaster Road. I mean, the camp itself now is gone, right? So I couldn't go back there even if I wanted to. But I'm pretty sure it was called Lancaster Road. And out of the back of our house was a bit of woodland that you could just go into. And in there was a tree I called the anchor tree because this tree was um, probably about four foot off the ground. It bifurcated into two thick trunks. And there was a branch stump that came out of the front of it and I could grab that and pull myself up into the tree at being about five or six years old. Um, and I used to love climbing in that tree when I was when I was really young. 
And when I was a teenager, I could still remember that tree. And so when I had a bike and I would just ride around the camp, it occurred to me, hang on a second, why don't I go back to Lancaster Road? Why don't I go and see the, the, the anchor tree again? And I went and I found it. And I climbed up on it. And it was very, very wholesome to have a, a very pleasant memory and place that was connected to my memory as a child. And that's really the only time that's ever happened for me because we moved to a different base every every couple of years. And it was nice to be back on this place. So, so this this feeling of nostalgia, you'd love to go back there, but it, well, it's not there anymore. Like, isn't it, isn't it terrible that these things have been taken away? Because in many ways, the prior to the sort of late 20th century, these communities had been settled for hundreds of years. The way of life had not changed significantly for hundreds of years, even though technological developments had occurred. And it's only really in the kind of mass modernization that creates the kind of mass man that these things have changed. Like it wasn't until the late 20th century when immigration became just something everyone had to do all the time, to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not a million people a year. That just didn't happen. It wasn't the case that the entire village would be bought up by property developers and then repurposed or new builds would be springing up everywhere. It, it just was not the case that that happened. And so he's speaking directly to the ruination of Britain because this is what is ruining the country. Modernization is destroying the beautiful things that we inherited from the distant past. So at this point, the letter finishes and he just gives some kind words and uh, says thank you and uh, tells us about the mead, which uh, is from a local brewer, which is lovely. And I've really enjoyed it. But um, I just, again, I, I've, I really do feel this chap's concern because it is one thing watching the degradation of your country happening around you all the time, in real time, at a slow rate of decay. It's one thing to have that happen. But then to have the state, the society, the institutions essentially preference other people who didn't help contribute to and build the thing, even though the thing is in decline, uh, have it preference those people who don't have a claim to it, who don't feel they possess the land, they just occupy the land, um, is a kind of humiliation. And I can understand why this chap is very, very angry that this is being done to him, because it's not fair. It's not right. It shouldn't be done. And everyone knows it shouldn't be done. And if it was being done in reverse, we would surely say, well, hang on a second. That's, that's not on, is it? It's not right for you to go and take advantage of them in the way that he is now being taken advantage of. And yet every day he's expected to get up, go to work, pay his taxes and fund this. Really annoys me. And I can tell that it really annoys him too. Um, thank you to this uh, anonymous chap for your letter. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the mead. I've really enjoyed it. And everyone else in the office has had a glass as well. They've really enjoyed it. Um, and I haven't got any good news. I haven't got any words of optimism. I, like you, hope this would get better, but it's clearly not going to get better. I think it's going to continue on like this and just keep getting worse. But I suppose the good news is that you're not alone. You're not the only person who feels that way. I think a lot of people 
feel this way. And I think at least one day we will have the political voice by which to express this. Take care, folks.